Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. A very familiar passage of scripture from John chapter 3 this morning. You know, if this passage from John's gospel is true, if this account of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is what it claims to be on its face, then what we are about to delve into in this passage is the most important thing that we could possibly talk about this morning. What we've encountered in Jesus' words in this conversation between Jesus and this Pharisee Nicodemus These words is the the boundary line between eternal life and joy, the boundary line between eternal life and joy, and eternal condemnation. You know, we live in a time of what I would call, I would observe to be, and I'm not the only one, but I, I would call it a general apostasy. We live in a time of a general apostasy in the West, a great falling away from Christian faith in North America and in Europe that this was hoped to usher in an enlightened uh, secular utopia. We're going to go away from all that religious Jesus stuff to a a secular worldview, a godless worldview, and that will bring in a new enlightened utopia. But instead, in lieu of the faith in Jesus Christ, what has been offered instead has been, listen, nihilism and emptiness and bitterness and meaninglessness. That's what's come in to replace the position once held by Jesus in our culture. What has replaced Jesus Christ in the West has not been a secular utopia, but rage and division and confusion. And if if what I hear on the radio and see on my news feed is any indication, evidently panic and questions about confusions about the very nature of reality itself. And it seems to me that the most distinct contribution of this new godlessness that the West has embraced is actually hopelessness, hopelessness. And I think that's what accounts for the rise, the steep rise in addiction and deaths due to addiction in this country and also the steep rise in suicide in this country. However, but... If this conversation between Jesus Christ and Nicodemus is true, then I want you to know that there is an alternative narrative. There's another story that can be told. The scripture we read this morning culminates with this statement by Jesus Christ. John 3, 16. Perhaps you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here is the choice before us this morning. We can choose to perish. We can choose godless secularism's narrative of hopelessness and despair and rage, a narrative that at its very best, the very best you can hope for ultimately in that narrative is oblivion at the grave. In other words, you just die and the lights are turned off And that is it forever and ever and ever. That's your best hope at the end. That does not make me feel all warm and fuzzy. That doesn't doesn't give me the feels. Or we can embrace the invitation to believe a different truth, 
to dare to believe that God does, in fact, love the world so much that he gave his only son, that if we trust in Jesus Christ, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we can experience eternal life. And yes, eternal life means a life that cannot be defeated by death, a life of joy that goes on forever in God's presence, but it's actually more than that. You don't have to die to experience eternal life. Eternal life is a new quality of life that doesn't start at death. It begins rather in the here and now with a new birth, a new birth, a new life right now. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And the best place to begin this is where Scripture begins in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. So focusing on that person, Nicodemus is a good place for us to begin this conversation. Because the gospel writer, John, thinks we need to know some things about Nicodemus in order to understand the conversation. He has to tell us about the character of Nicodemus so we can have a context for his conversation with Jesus Christ. And so it says this, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one could do these signs that you do unless God was with him. And in that little sentence, that little couple of phrases, there is an abundance of information given. First of all, here's what we know about Nicodemus. I'll start from the last thing mentioned and as the first. It says that he came by night. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came by night to see Jesus. This is evidently, the fact that John includes this, is evidently to indicate that Nicodemus feared being associated with Jesus Christ. He, was, he had the fear of man. He was ashamed to be seen of Jesus, with Jesus. Fear of losing his social standing as a religious leader in his community. So by coming, by coming at night, he avoids, the, uh, he avoids the uncomfortable circumstance of somebody actually t seeing him talking to this Galilean rabbi. And we know that we, we can infer that this is not meant to tell us this. It's not to say, hey, you know, um, Nicodemus just wanted a, a really quiet time to talk to Jesus, have a conversation. No, because actually this is brought up again in John 19, in the last part of John's gospel, where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea publicly take the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus provides the money to provide the, the embalming ointments for the body of Jesus after he has been taken down on the cross. And it says in John 19, it says, Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus by night. In other words, he wants us to see there's been a progression from a person who was ashamed because of the fear of man to be associated with Jesus Christ in John 3 to someone who was willing at, at Jesus' most low and uh, dishonored point in his ministry when he's actually died on the cross and the shame associated with that, and Nicodemus is willing to be associated with Jesus at that point. So he is a man, Nicodemus is a man who is, listen, attracted to Jesus. He's attracted to the person of Jesus, but he has the fear of man. It sounds like maybe somebody that you might know. It also says that he was a Pharisee, and so that Nicodemus was a person with great learning. That's what Pharisees did. They studied God's word, very studious, 
very involved in conversation around uh, the whole of the Jewish scriptures, the law and the writings and the prophets. And he also practiced a very strict religious piety. He was a very rigorous follower of his religion. That's what Pharisees were. They poured over the Hebrew scriptures. They longed to perfectly live out God's law. They were probably the most religious people. Okay, ready? The Pharisees were probably the most religious people in first century Palestine. So Nicodemus was a very religious man, a very moral man, a man with great public responsibility. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a model citizen. Probably went to the Rotary Club on the Chamber of Commerce from wherever he was at. Nicodemus was also a man with a very, listen, a very high opinion of Jesus. He believed all the supernatural stuff that Jesus was doing. He believed that it was real and that it indicated that God was with him. Teacher, we know that you are sent from God. That's, that's, he's, that's a high statement of intellectual assent because no one could do the signs, these miraculous things you're doing, unless God was with him. But what does Jesus say, listen, to this morally immaculate, this morally immaculate man? It actually seems so abrupt. It seems so non sequitur. It almost seems rude the way he responds to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has kind of buttered him up a little bit. Hey, we know you're a good guy. Jesus answered him, this is John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He, can, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and this is critical for us this morning, that being religious, that being moral is not enough. In fact, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it, if all you're depending upon is your moral perfection and your religiosity. Something else has to happen. Jesus says you must be born again. And that, that is the same word that Jesus speaks to you sitting in that pew this morning and to me. We must be born again. Being religious, being moral, being smart, being respectable is not how you gain eternal life. If that's what you're hoping in, then at the very best, you can hope in nothing but the oblivion of the grave. It's such a strange statement. You must be born again. It's so strange that I don't think we can take it at face value. What could it possibly mean? We need to delve into it because if being born again is the key to eternal life, and it is in this passage, then this is an ultimately important statement, and we have to examine it closely. Jesus answered, this is verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one, he's speaking in Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and I want to stop right there, and I want to stop and hover over that phrase, born of water, in the, in the longer sentence of being born by water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, here's what I found out as I studied many commentaries about that. There is no consensus. I would love for it to be easy, a slam dunk. Yeah, it means baptism. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to mean baptism, Christian baptism, since Nicodemus would have no clue what Christian baptism was a reference towards. But anyway, it's, it's something that he would understand in that context. But I think the rest of the passage explains itself. 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So what does being born anew mean? Well, first of all, listen. We are going to have a new crop of babies here at Christ Church. And that's always a wonderful thing. In fact, it's weird when there's not a new fresh crop of babies coming in. It's something that God does to the communion wine at Christ Church, I'm convinced. And so be careful. <laughs> or not. But here's the thing. Whenever, at the very least, being born again points to birth, which is new life. Every birth is the entrance of a new person, a new person into the world, a new creation into the world. Therefore, the new birth is God giving us a new life. And if that's the case, here's what we know. We know that being born again is not merely turning over a new leaf or just trying harder or getting a bigger moral hammer to beat your life into shape with. Being born again is not becoming more religious. Oh, I'm going to go to church so hard, so hard during Lent. I'm going to get so religious. You know, I don't, uh, all those other people are going to stay home because of coronavirus. I'm going to go to church. That's not what it means to be born again. It doesn't mean having an emotional experience. You know, I, I had some crystals, and I meditated, and I felt so good. I just felt so warm. That's not being born again. No, what, to be, what it means to be born again is it is a new life. John Piper, famous Anglican theologian. No, he's Baptist. John Piper says, What happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature. It is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature, a nature that is really you and is forgiven and cleansed, a nature that is really new and is being formed in you by the indwelling Spirit of God. And you know, this promise and expectation of a new birth, of becoming a new creation, is found throughout the entire Bible. It's not just here in John chapter 3. In fact, Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet, foretold the new birth. God speaks through his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. God says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, the transformation of the inner person, the stony, hard heart, heart against God, heart against my neighbor, a heart that is hardened by sin, a heart that is hardened by disappointment. I'll take out that hard heart, and I'll put in a new, tender, a flesh, a heart of flesh, a tender heart, warm towards God, warm with love for God and neighbor. It's a promise that it would happen. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's called being made a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, being made a new creation. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it's referred to as putting off the old self or putting off the old man and putting on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, a whole new self. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 
It's called being, listen, Peter says it's being called out of darkness into light. And every one of those statements refers to a deep, deep root change in a person. Not a improvement, but a new beginning. So the new birth is not something that we do, all right? You know what you contributed to your own birth naturally? You contributed to the discomfort of your mother. That's what you contributed. The new birth is not something that we do, but rather that something God does in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who causes the new birth. He causes us to be born again. Just like your natural birth, you contribute nothing to the process. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, listen to what it says, he, God, caused us to be born again by his great mercy. Born again to a living hope. So the new birth, please listen, is a supernatural action of God that changes us from in the very core of our being. And as the result of the new birth, we are given, we're granted a whole new set of loves and affections and desires and uh, priorities. Um, Jerry Clower, and again, I'm go- every time I preach these days, I feel like somebody's going to just say, okay, boomer, you know, all these boomer popular culture references. Popular culture ended in 1979 when I graduated from high school. I don't know what's happened since then. So, uh, but anyway, Jerry Clower was a humorist. Uh, he was also a, uh, a Southern Baptist minister. He's a very famous guy uh, among some cir- circles. He was a t- tremendous storyteller. But one, one time someone asked him, Jerry, when you were born again, didn't you have to stop doing all the things you wanted to do? Jerry, didn't you have to stop doing all the things you wanted to do? And he said, oh, no. All my, when, when you were born again, he said, no. When I was born again, all my want-tos, all my want-tos were changed. And so we are given new love. We, we begin to love God in a way we didn't love him before we wanted Back when we avoided God, now we love God. Uh, we love God's word. Back when the, before the new birth, the scriptures were not important to us. They made little sense at all to us. But after we come to know God in the new birth, he gives us the, the desire to read God's word. It's a hunger. It's almost like a physical craving to be in God's word. He causes us to love God's people. The very people that we used to stand outside the church and say, they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Now we want to be with them and we love them. How did that happen? It wasn't the way it was prior to the new birth. It's because God has made us a new creation. And by the way, we are horribly inconsistent people. So yes, you could, we probably are from time to time terrible hypocrites. I'm, I'm one too, probably. But, that, but God is gracious. God is gracious. And he is changing even us hypocritical people more and more to the image of the Son. He causes us to love his world, the people who don't know him, and the beautiful creation around us. So our desires and motivations are altered at their very deepest root. So if, that's, if this is all true, if there is an alternate reality that I could be a part of where I am living this new life, a life that is full of love, a life that is joyful, it's the life that is only eternal life that has hope for beyond the grave, My question is, how do I get me some of that born again? 
if that's what this is all about, how do I get me some of that? Well, it happens, the new birth, which is God's gift that God does in us, happens when we trust ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we turn completely from ourselves to him and believe in him, God gives us this gift. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, this is Jesus. He says this. It's a very strange statement if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and somebody might think, oh my goodness, are we going to be a snake handling church? No, that's not what this is about. It says, and as Jesus said, as when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, <clears throat> that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that reference to Moses lifting up the serpent is recorded in Numbers chapter 21. It's an Old Testament book. There's a passage in Rome, uh, Numbers chapter 21. And in that scripture, the Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness, they had turned against God and they turned against Moses. So in judgment, God sent venomous snakes. It says fiery serpents in the ESV, fiery serpents, into their camp. And many people were bitten by those venomous serpents and died. And the people thought this, hmm, you know, I don't think I want to be in rebellion against God anymore. I'm going to repent. And so they rep repented and turned back to God. And in order to save them from judgment, and here's the reference that Jesus is making, in order to save them from judgment, Moses made a snake, a little like molten carved snake out of bronze, cast it out of bronze, and he put it on a pole that it could be raised up, and anyone who was bitten looked at that snake, could look at that snake, and they were healed and they lived from the snake bite. So here's what it means. The people under God's judgment, when they were under God's judgment, they repented and God created a provision. A provision was made for them to be saved from judgment. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is looking forward to the cross of Calvary. He says this, you, you are under judgment. You and I have all been bitten by sin and death. We're snake bit. God has made a provision to free us from judgment through Jesus Christ's atoning death as he was raised up, lifted up on that cross. So now if we repent and look to him for salvation and trust in him, God gives us eternal life and we experience the new birth. Now this is important. Obviously, obviously Nicodemus believed that Jesus was someone sent for God. Obviously Nicodemus believed that these things that Jesus was doing were supernatural and, and, and there were, God was in it. But what Nicodemus had not done is that he had not put his whole trust in Jesus Christ to save him. That's the kind of trust we're talking about. This opportunity to experience the new birth is offered to everyone. Everyone. Again, that verse we already heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes. What does whoever mean? It means whoever Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But at the end of this chapter, we didn't read this. We find that to continue in rejecting this opportunity is to remain under God's judgment. 
John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I wanted to think about, I wanted a story that I could tell you that kind of wrapped this all up and illustrated what we're talking about the new, when we're talking about the new birth. Um, I, I went to J.C. Ryle, the great 19th century Anglican bishop. Surely he would have an example of what the new birth was. And I didn't find anything there that really suited me. I went to Jim Cimbala, because I like Jim Cimbala, up in, in, uh, in New York. He said, well, he'll have a good story of new birth. He did, but it wasn't just right. I went to, I went to uh, John Piper, that, other, that Anglican. No, that a Baptist, I'm sorry. And he, he didn't have a good story either. He just talked about it. So I said, you know what I'll do? I'll just tell my story. How about that? My experience. Now, my experience of the new birth is my experience. This is the experience that I know the best. But listen, it's not normative. You know, my experience of this great gift was not, doesn't mean you have to do it like me. You know, every healthy natural birth is different. I already cleared this with our resident doula, so these statements are correct. Some births are fast. And some are slow. Some are dramatic. And some are very low key. But every healthy birth results in a new life coming into the world. So your experience of the new birth may be different from mine. But if it has happened to you, you will, be, you will have been made a new person with new loves and new priorities. So let me just tell you my experience. Some of us can't remember their experience. They were very young, perhaps, or it was a very gradual experience. Like I said, some births are slow. But my birth happened, my new birth happened on um, uh, April 9th, 1978, at about 11.45 a.m. And I know that because it happened in the little church I grew up in in Hamlet, North Carolina, a little Methodist church I grew up in. And I was about, I was 16 years old, and uh, a pretty girl had tricked me into coming to church with her. And so, uh, oh, it was a total setup. Uh, but it turns out they were having a special youth lay witness mission. What in the world is that? Well, it was young people predominantly telling their testimonies of how they had been born anew, born from above, born again. And so uh, it was, this was going to be a regular church service, though, and there weren't going to be any testimonies or anything weird like that. And so I figured I would be okay, and I would just go in the back. You know, I'd take up, they, they, they tricked me by saying, would you come in and be an usher and take up the offering? I said, sure, I'll do that. And then I'll go out with the old guys who smoke on the back porch of the church and stand out there for the rest of the service. But uh, anyway, they didn't let me do that. I took up the offering, and they scooted me back into the sanctuary. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. And I said, well, at least, at least the pastor here is so deadly dull and dry, like dry corn shucks dry that nothing possibly could happen except a few minutes of boredom uh, taken out of the rest of my life. So I sat down and was going to listen to my preacher that is in that church. Well, it wasn't him. No, no, no. It was the, our junior high Sunday school teacher from back when I was in a junior high, actually middle school teacher, Leonard Fox. Leonard Fox was, a, uh, was an old man. He was old when God was a boy. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but, but Leonard had been a, a prize fighter, like a bantamweight prize fighter in the 1950s. He was, the, he was, also, he was a mean fellow, a town drunk in Hamlet, North Carolina. And he got radically converted 
born again, born anew, born from above, and his whole life he became a different person. And so this Leonard Fox, who was the guy who taught like he knew who Jesus was as if he had met him personally and was the man who always made us middle school boys cry in Sunday school class because we were so convicted by the Holy Spirit as he began to tell us of God's redeeming love. No, that's the man who stepped into the pulpit. And I can't remember everything. I remember a good part of that sermon. I won't, I won't pass it on to you, but it was so moving to me. And Jesus says in the passage that we just read that, the, that the, the new birth, the way the Spirit does this, is like the wind. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear it. But where it comes from and where it goes, you don't know. In other words, the Holy Spirit is blowing through that congregation and sovereignly reaching out to this 16-year-old rebellious young man sitting by himself. Mom and Dad aren't there. They're off somewhere else. Not, no sisters, no, no kinfolk by himself on a pew in the Methodist church, and the Holy Spirit begins to convict me of this. Ben, you are, you are in a Christless state. You have been in rebellion against me. I love you. I laid down my life for you. Please, please receive my gift of eternal life. And I was, I was so convicted by the Spirit, I was physically shaking, physically shaking. And, and at one point, I was so overwhelmed and, and, and by it, I actually started to hold on to the pew, to the seat of the pew, and I held so tightly, I looked down, and my knuckles had turned white. I was grasping so tight. And I was, there was a battle, please listen, there was a battle going on within me. Part of me just felt immensely attracted to Jesus Christ, wanted to come and follow him, and another part of me was saying, no, 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 don't do that. I know where that was coming from. It was saying stuff like this. If you do this, you will not be popular. You will be weird. If you accept Jesus Christ, God is going to send you as a missionary to, uh, to some place you don't want to go. Uh, if you accept Jesus Christ, you'll never be popular again. If you accept Jesus Christ, girls will not like you. You'll be one of those people. And so uh, that, that struggle goes on. But I said, finally, the Holy Spirit enabled me to say, if he gives an invitation to accept Christ, I knew such things could happen. I'm going to go up and do what he says, and I'll kneel at the altar, and I will accept Christ. And I'm going to do it very quietly. I'm going to just very uh, surreptitiously slip down the aisle, go off to the side, and say a, say a quiet, quiet prayer. And so, sure enough, Fox said the invitation. He said, if anyone would like to receive Christ and experience the new birth, I want you to feel free now to come down to the altar, to this chancel rail, kneel and pray to receive Christ. Well, I, I slid down to the end of the pew. I put my hand on the, the, the pew on the end there, and I put my foot on the carpet in the middle aisle, and at that point, something happened, and I, know, I was no longer, I did not care about being dignified or not drawing attention to myself. The only thing I wanted was Jesus. And I ran down the aisle. Nobody ran at that church. That happened at that church down by the river. People ran and jumped and shouted and stuff. Yeah. That didn't happen at that Methodist church. There was not a responsive reading for what I was doing. So I ran down to the chancel and I jumped, I le leapt, leaped the last remaining feet and grabbed a hold of that chancel rail, wrapped my arms around it, 
and began to, to say, Lord Jesus, I don't know if you want someone like me, but if you do, if you'll take me, I'm yours. Every part of me. I couldn't get the prayer out. It didn't come. I could not finish saying a prayer. It was not a sinner's prayer. It was a sinner praying. Save me. And in that moment, it was as if somebody had took the top of my head off and poured liquid love, warm liquid love, down into my body. I had never felt such love from anyone. I knew my mom and daddy loved me. I knew my dog loved me. My sisters didn't. But but I wouldn't have either if I was their brother. But I felt such tremendous acceptance. Somebody loved me and thought I was adorable and precious. Precious? Thought I was, thought I, just without any, any tinge of judgment or reservation, just wave upon wave of unconditional love. Overwhelming overwhelming love and acceptance. That didn't come from me. I've never had that feeling before. I was being made a new creation experience, something that the old Ben Sharp had never known. A new person was being born right there, a screaming baby in the, at, the, at, the, at the chancel rail at that little Methodist church. And I, I know this sounds weird and I cannot explain it, but literally, and it was just like today, beautiful, sunny day like today, uh, but li- and I thought I was seeing the light. I thought I could see light when I came into that room, but when, when the new birth occurred for me, this is my experience, it was like somebody, there was a black gauze in front of my eyes that was taken off, and I saw light for the very first time. I had been walking in darkness. He's taken us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then I'm telling you, these things happen. And then I had this immense sense of, I felt almost weightless that this burden that I had been carrying of all my sin and unbelief and rebellion and hard-heartedness and resentment, those brick bats of sin in a backpack I didn't know I was carrying, somebody took that off my back and I could have floated through the ceiling. I'd never felt so light. Now, you don't have to have that experience. This was my experience. What I want you to hear is this, that the person, that young man that walked into that church on Sunday morning did not exist anymore. There was a new young man that walked out of that church that Sunday morning, and my life has never been the same. And that's what God wants for you, to know that unconditional love and joy and acceptance like you have never known before. He craves it so much that he gave his only son that whoever, you are a whoever. You, I am a whoever. Whoever believes in him, trusts in him, like that snake on the pole. Oh, I'm going to die if I don't see that serpent on the stick that Moses made. I'm desperate to be relieved from this snake bite you will go running to the cross and look to that man who loved you so much that he laid his life down for you and say, I am desperate for a new beginning. Desperate. Please. I don't know if you want me, 
but if you will have me, take all of me. You'll not finish the prayer. You will be a different person. If you have experienced that, remember that today. Would you please remember what God did for you? That you're not the same person. And if you've never experienced that, then um, welcome to the obstetrics unit. Did I say that right? Mostly. The OB unit of God's house where new births begin all the time. Today would be a great day for you to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I receive you. Make me new. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.